Click out behind you. It's a bird. It's a play. It's a podcast. Welcome back to Detroit Strange. We're glad you're here. Yes. I figured I'd do something a little spooky for spooky season. I liked it. Yeah. That was great. Um, I don't know why I just said, um, I don't know why I do that. I'm, I mean, yeah, it's part of the human vernacular. It really is. <laughs> but yeah, no, spooky season is well upon us now. I mean, we've been celebrating for a bit, but we're in it. We're in it now. I mean, honestly, I think we kind of celebrate a little bit all year round, but this oh, is sure. just, we're ramping it up now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's getting a little spookier outside. Oh, yeah. I like it. Watching those leaves change. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although it is really hot and humid for this time of year. It really is. I I had to turn the air on today because it was just like so humid in here. It wasn't mm-hmm. like too hot but just the humidity i'm like i gotta close the windows and now it's hot and humid in here i'm turning that air on i know it's october yeah oh yeah no it's definitely not like the actual temperature it's definitely the humidity that's making it right Mm -hmm. my house is like hotter than it is outside yeah 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 mine too mine too i went on a hike this week and i i actually got hot and i don't expect that in like 70 degrees to get hot right just that damn humidity yeah i hate it it was like a swampy area too, which I should have figured that things, out. Yeah, it does make things a bit swampier. Uh mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On the nose. Yep. So one thing we haven't done yes. in a while is we haven't talked about how to reach us up top in the show. Yeah, just in case any of you don't make it through the episode. I don't know why. It must have been some tragic accident that made you stop. But yeah. In case you haven't gotten to the end in a while you can reach us on our social media at detroit strange on instagram and twitter detroit strange on facebook and our email address uh detroit strange at gmail.com mm-hmm. and uh last week we had a lot of fun on instagram we asked people for their comfort movies we yes. got a lot of really great responses oh yeah it was a lot of fun to look through them yes uh yeah and if you want to support the show you could always head over to apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review that would be amazing and it's free to do it is and if you want to do something not free uh we've also got our patreon oh yeah and our threadless shop get some merch yeah (laughs) we also did something else very exciting last week we sure did despite uh scheduling difficulties I guess we should say what it is first before I yeah. saw how I fucked it up. But so we recorded an episode with Scaring a Sharing. And it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. We were scheduled to record on Saturday mm-hmm. at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. I thought it was 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. So I showed up an hour late and we had to reschedule. But we did it on Sunday. We had a great time. And we talked about some really fun movies. Mm-hmm. Both of them say they involve Devil's Night. Uh, yeah, they're both kind of Devil's Night, both, ki- both kind of Detroit. Yeah. Both. I mean, one has like 12,000 drone shots of Detroit. And Lake Orion. And Lake Orion. Which is apparently next to Detroit now. Yes. So. Then The Crow. I, I was telling my therapist about The Crow, and I told him it looks like the part of Gotham City where they filmed Rent. <laughs> It does. That's actually perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so we watched but not Detroit. I th- where um 
Something Devil's Night, Nain Rouge. Uh, Nain, or no, Devil's Night, The Dawn of the Nain Rouge. There we go. We watched that movie. And we also watched The Crow. And then we got to talk about it with Scaring and Sharing, which was... A lot of fun. Yeah, just a blast. They are so much fun. I highly recommend you go check it out. That was their 50th episode, too, which is very yeah. exciting. Yeah. Congrats to so, them on 50 episodes. Yeah. That's basically like a one-year anniversary. So... Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. And they're just... You can tell they really love horror movies, too, just by talking about them. Oh, my gosh, them. yes. So it's just fun to have someone else who loves to talk about movies. Yeah. To talk movies with. Yeah. And have, like, an excuse to watch. Oh, yeah. Some stuff. So, yeah. If you're into movies, I highly suggest you check them out. Subscribe. Uh, you can follow along, you know, watch the movies, then listen to their episodes. Yeah. Uh, I've done that before. And, it, you know, it can feel like you're part of the episode. Yeah. You, you know. Some they, they hit the nail on it's the head. It's fresh in your mind so yeah. you can kind of be more involved in the conversation that they're having. Yeah. We won't be able to talk. I mean, you can talk to them, but they won't talk back because it's a recording. But but it's okay. No, I, yeah. I love doing that when, like, it's something about a certain piece of media that I'm letting you know beforehand so you can kind of mm -hmm. refresh it in your mind. Because I will use any excuse to rewatch a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure that they put it out beforehand, but you can watch the movies and then listen yeah. to the episode. Yeah, yeah for sure. But speaking of movies, yes, I'll keep it brief, but I saw the new Bond movie. <laughs> you did warn me ahead of time. I did. We almost recorded this right after, and I'm so glad we didn't because it emotionally destroyed me and I needed a minute. <laughs> so I'm assuming you enjoyed it? I did. Okay. It was good because I like don't even think I watched a full trailer before I saw it, which is impressive because it was supposed to come out in November of 2019. So the fact that I yeah. avoided things for that long. Mm -hmm. It's a testament. That is impressive. I don't think I could do that if I was excited about a movie. That's the first thing I do. I like I just for some reason I was like, I know I'm going to like it and I want to know as little as possible about it. So, OK, I love that. Yeah. So I like saw it at like noon on Friday. It was perfect. Oh, yeah. I adore that. Way more emotional than I was expecting. But I guess it makes sense because Daniel Craig's last one. Oh, it is? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was kind of good that he came back for this last one because, like, it kind of sounded like after Spectre, he was, like, done. Okay. But I'm glad he came back because, like, he says in a lot of interviews, they were able to, like, tie up a lot of loose ends and give this story a really nice ending. Because, like, his movies do have a story arc that kind of mm -hmm. goes across all five movies, which is a first for the Bond series. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love that, like, it got to be wrapped up a little bit more. Yeah. Without being, you know, yeah. off. And I love that you got to see it. I love that you got to see something that I'll you probably go see love. it again tomorrow, honestly. <laughs> uh I mean I get it though too. I get I get super excited about things. I I'm very excited for a movie that comes out in November. So I Ooh, think what it's movie, November. What movie? Tick Tick Boom. Okay. Have you heard about it? The name sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you anything it's, about it. About the the man who created Rent. Okay. And I'm, I know I've told you I'm into Rent, but I don't think you understand. Is it like, Stephen Chbosky? No, 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 no. He wrote it. Or, no. Nope, I'm thinking of something else. Uh, he did Perks of Being Wallflower, I believe. I think he was involved in Rent somehow, though. If he was, it was in a very, I mean, he okay. was, I don't think he would, because it was really written in like the 80s. Yeah. With it debuted, I forget it was late 80s or early 90s. I don't know, but it no, Jonathan Larson. Okay, and I don't know if you know. Well, I watched a two hour documentary on my phone accidentally the other day because I put it on in the background almost just to like listen to it because I'm so excited about this movie and I just yeah. watched the preview and then I was like, let me watch this like longer documentary about him. 
And he, I was crying. I was crying. I stopped cleaning. I was like cleaning. I stopped cleaning. I started watching it like on my phone for some reason, instead of casting it or doing something with it. But what he was like a really, he went to college and he was an actor in college. He was a really good actor, but then he kind of switched and he wanted to be a composer and he worked really, really hard at it. He started living this like super bohemian lifestyle, like mostly on purpose. And he really kind of started embracing it. He would make these really avant-garde kind of pieces. One of them actually was called Tick, Tick, Boom, and it starred him. But a lot of it was kind of um, commenting on where society was going. Mm-hmm. Like he kind of was ahead of his time on calling out things. Like this, yeah. this is pre like the internet. Yeah. And he was like basically calling out like the way that things are like media and the way that yeah. things are covered. And he eventually met somebody who suggested that they remake La Boheme, which is a opera. Yeah. Which is what Rent is based off of. I knew that. And then he actually, he was around for the AIDS epi- epi- epidemic. Yep. And a lot of his friends passed away from AIDS. Yeah. Uh, he does have a friend who survived, which is really great too. But he saw like a lot of that heartbreak that went along with that too. Oh, absolutely. And so as Brent started developing, these storylines started getting added into it too. Yeah. The things that he was actually living and seeing with his friends and people around him. And eventually they got it up at a place called the New York Theater Workshop which Mm -hmm. is off Broadway, just a place they had never done like a musical like this or anything. And eventually found producers, which is, you know, a hard part to do. Yeah. And it changed a lot. They got it to a point and he, they had their dress rehearsal, standing ovations at the dress rehearsal. Everybody loved it. There was a guy from, I don't know, like New York times or some big large publication that interviewed him right afterwards and was like running a story the next day. Like this is gonna be great. Right. Yeah. Uh, He went home that night and died. Oh, no. Yeah. From aortic aneurysm. Oh, shit. And he had been having some health issues and going to the doctor and they were they couldn't find anything wrong. They were just like, you're probably stressed, you know, this, this and that. Uh, And basically his family was coming in to, you know, see it for opening night. And they were like, we want you to go ahead and he would he would want this is what he's been working so hard for. And they did the first half with the actors seated at a table. And by the second half, they were all so like immersed in the music and the story, they ended up just basically doing the second half because they like couldn't sit still like yeah. with, with this emotions. Also because there's like a large storyline of death within it. Yeah. And also one of the songs is called One Song Glory and it's one song before I go. Yeah. So there was like a lot of like things being hit in that way. I don't know. There's like such a weird, horrible beauty in this situation, but it's oh, also yeah. like this thing that was his passion yeah. Ended up just doing phenomenally. Oh, yeah. So I, long story short, I get being really excited about a movie because I'm really excited about this one. Stand- yeah. stars Andrew Garfield as Jonathan oh, Larson. I love him, too. Yeah. And based on the trailer, I, I think it will be good. No, that's exciting. There was, I was asking which movie because like, there was a, I remember like seeing a preview for something yesterday and it was like, or Friday. And I was like, I have to go see that. Mm-hmm. Can't remember what it is now, but <laughs> we'll find out eventually. Yeah. Um, oh, House of Gucci. That's the one I'm excited for next month. Oh, I have. Okay. With I Adam Driver heard, and Lady Gaga. Yeah, I have heard of it. In fact, I did see that preview, but I saw it like months ago, so I don't. Yeah. This is the good. first time I saw like the pre. I've seen like stills of them filming it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but like I always got like notifications of like Lady Gaga yelling in the streets of Rome. Like, 
Perfect. As dressed as Gucci lady. Who wouldn't want to see that? Right. <laughs> Clearly, I'm very well versed to the topic of Gucci lady. She probably has a first name. Um, I GL. Yeah. Gucci lady. Gucci lady. Yep. That's it. That's it. We'll report back in November when I see the movie and can yes, get her name. Confirm her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I did want to tell you, too. I told you a little bit, but I did want to tell you that... I was watching Midnight Mass on Netflix. Oh, yeah. The the Bly Manor, you know, person. Yeah. Uh, wrote that. And it isn't, it's a little slow. I will say it, it was a little slow in the beginning. Yeah. And there are a few slow moments, but then it like kind of picked up. And it's interesting because it's creepy, but not in the way of Bly Manor or House on Haunted Hill. Okay. Because those are both like. Ooky spooky creepy where yeah, it's like, like there's a bump in the night. There's a ghosty from something in the past. And yeah. Is this yeah. one not so much like that? Um, It's spooky, but it's it's more like there's a very large religious undertone midnight mass. I mean, yeah. it's that kind of mass. And I don't want to give too much away, but there's yeah. definitely a lot of religious undertones. Kind of a um, there's a there's a good evil situation for sure. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to check this out, just especially because when I was like trying to find a story for this week, I read about a cult, but it was in Ohio. So I was like, we're not doing anything in Ohio, but it was an interesting cult. Unless we go on a longer road trip. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, this has culty vibes for sure. Yeah. yeah. And it was, so it was, I think I like read about two cults yesterday and just... Um, I'm kind of, kind of in that mindset, so I'm going to have to watch this now. Mm-hmm. We're not, well, we're, we're sipping on some coffee right now to go along with the biscotti that you made. Yes, I made biscotti. Uh, I started <laughs> off trying to make chocolate chip cookies and realized I had a missing ingredient, so I was able to pivot to biscotti. Love it. I mean, it's they're delicious. I'm kind of happier I made biscotti just because, like, it's delicious. I don't think it's something like cookies where I can just, like, go to town on, mm-hmm. so it's good for, like, yeah. You know, it'll be around for a minute yeah. and it's good with coffee. So I'm happy I yeah. made it. Well, and because it's best dipping it in coffee. Oh, yeah. It's slower to eat because you have to have the coffee. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You just eat a biscotti. Which means I'll just be drinking a shit ton of coffee this yeah. week. <laughs> I mean, this is already my third cup today. Oh. <laughs> First one with biscotti, though. Two were, were just kind of cups of coffee earlier. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is my first one today, but yeah. Th- there could be more in my future. Only time was all. Yes. Only time. Oh, oh. <laughs> Anya aside. Mm-hmm. So just before we get started on our story today, we wanted to just play a clip from the episode we did with Scaring a Sharing. Yeah, we think we think you're going to like it because it was a lot of we fun. We had so much fun doing it. So hopefully you'll check it out and maybe this clip will entice you. It was like a bad episode of Buffy for a while, and then like one of the worst sci-fi movies you've ever seen. Like, And one of the worst Law & Order episodes I've ever seen <laughs> at times. Like in the beginning, it was like, this is not horror at all. This is like a police procedural we're watching. And not a great one. No. No, a very bad one. All the flashback scenes were like 10 minutes long, and they didn't need to be. Like a line or two of dialogue could have covered most of either flashback scene because there was the the war one which in eastern europe and yeah oh my god (laughs) what's happening oh my god and then also even the funeral one it was and again it was to use their drone clearly they wanted to use it at least five (laughs) times in that scene but it was so long and i was like this is not helping whatsoever especially because that like military flashback scene 
they spend so long they get to her and then just to have her get shot as they're walking back to the helicopter <laughs> and just like you spent 10 minutes of my life building up this scene just to have her be shot as she's walking to the helicopter how dare you scaring is sharing scaring is sharing And we're back. We are back from that lovely clip. So good. So, Mm -hmm. story time. Yes. I was digging around for stories, and I found this one that I think you're going to... It's a true crime. You already told me really excited about it, which... I, I I love when one of us finds something like surprising. Just because like I feel I love when I find stories of like I could see Jess doing this. So I know she's really going to appreciate the story. OK. Uh, I know I talked about Bluebeard before. Yes. But do you know that Detroit also had a lady Bluebird? Bluebird or Bluebeard? Yep. That's the one. Bluebeard. Okay. <laughs> Bluebeard. I can't read. No, that's um, OK. Uh, I did which not. I thought would just I be a black widow, you know, like. Lady Bluebeard kind of just seems like, isn't that a black widow? You know? But yes. Yeah. 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 Maybe the term wasn't around back then. Yeah. But uh, she was known as Detroit's Lady Bluebeard. Okay. Her name was Euphemia Mondic. Oh. Yeah, that name. Rolls off the tongue. E-U-P-H-E-M-I-A. Euphemia. Euphemia. I think it's Polish. Okay. So we're going to get started here with a missing persons report, but not for a victim, but for Euphemia herself. Ooh. So picture it, Detroit, early 1924. Steve Mondick, which, Mondick, I don't know, Mondick. We're going to say Mondick, M-O-N-D-I-C-H. Yeah, I mean, it sounds German, so Mondick. Yeah. So Steve Mondick reported his wife missing. And he also reported that about $5,700 worth of cash and valuables were also missing, which adjusted for inflation is about $85,000. Sizable. Yeah. So the detectives came around and were asking about her. Steve mentioned that about three years prior to this event, Euphemia's previous husband had gone missing without a trace and that comments Euphemia had made in the recent months had led him to believe that she killed him. Oh, Notice how I said previous husband, because the last guy wasn't her first or her second, but her third husband. Okay. So we're going to take a quick side journey down her marriages real quick. Yeah. So her first marriage was in her native land of Poland, so I guess I'm Polish, to a man by the name of George Woodwood. Woodwood? Woodwood. Oh. Yep. Okay. George Woodwood. I had to look at that twice, too, because I'm like, not Woodward or Woodworth? Woodward. Yep. Sure. So he ended up dying three years later. And so she moved to Toronto, conveniently leaving the country after her husband dies. It's us. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's no record of how he died or anything like that either. Of course not. Yeah. They don't have records in Poland. No. Uh, So then she, like I said, she moved to Toronto and she didn't waste time finding another husband because she married a guy named George, another George, George Warupchuk. 
these Polish names. I'm trying my best. I was hoping it was like George Tree Tree. George Tree Tree. Yeah. Starts with a W still. Warupchuk. Yeah. Warpchuk. Warupchuk. Woodchuck. How much Warupchuk could a Warupchuk chuck if a Warupchuk could wood wood? So second husband, marriage ended in 1914 when one of them abandoned the other. They kind of like, she was like, well, he left me. And she, he was like, well, she left me. And so nobody's really quite sure, but they just kind of parted ways and they both agreed it was 1914 at least. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like usually the debate's the other way. Like I left them. No, I left that. You know what I mean? Like. I think it was just kind of like maybe for like divorce reasons of like, well, no, he left me. So I get the money. Oh, okay. I don't really know how law works and divorces no. in Toronto and in the 19, yeah. yeah. That's my guess, okay. but I also don't know. Okay. But after that, she moved to Detroit where she met her third husband, Joseph Sokolsky. And he's the one who disappeared about three years prior to this in 1921. Okay. Which is the year they were married as well. So wait, they got married and then he disappeared, basically? Yep, they got okay. married and then like later that same year he disappeared. Huh. And she filed for divorce on grounds of abandonment and was granted it. Huh. So she claimed abandonment again. Mm-hmm. After that, she met and married her fourth husband, Steve Mondick. Okay. Doesn't say how much time passed, but I'm guessing not much. No. So back to 1924, her fourth husband reports... Her and a little under $6,000 are gone, and the search begins. So at first, they were unsuccessful in finding her, but did kind of dig up some interesting information about the disappearance of Joseph, her third husband. Okay. So they found out that weeks before he disappeared, Euphemia was seen multiple times with a man unknown in that part of town. Interesting. After the disappearance, Euphemia moved away. Uh Uh-huh. And the neighbors noticed that the man stopped coming around that neighborhood, too. Hmm. This led detectives to believe that he helped her get rid of Joseph. Okay. This mysterious man. Because he it wasn't her fourth husband. It was just some guy. Just a guy. That nobody could really put a finger Identify. on. Identify. Yeah. He just had a really big suitcase and uh, some shovels with him at all times. Right. And, uh... It was 1924, but he had duct tape and tarps. Somehow. Yeah. But on September 8th of 1924, detectives caught a break when a tip came in. She was hiding right under their noses at the county courthouse. She was hiding in the courthouse? That's where at least she was at when they found her. Because she was there with the intentions to sell her home and leave the country. Got it. Again, fleeing a country. Yep. Mm -hmm. Quietly after stealing a bunch of money. Not suspicious whatsoever. No, she just wanted a vacation by herself. Mm -hmm, Forever. Yeah. So they found her there with her attorney, Arthur Willard, and were able to kind of coax out a confession that she had killed a man named John and that she would even show detectives where she hid the body. Wait, who's... John wasn't one of the husbands. No. This is another... Yep. Okay. So... Uncovering the body. Was it the man she was seen with? It sure was. <gasps> Sorry, I didn't mean to jump no, ahead. No, you're good, you're good. I'm about to get there. Okay. So they went back to her house on Dwyer, and it was already starting to get dark to the point. Oh, it was already starting to get dark at this point, so they had to excavate under her crawl space by Ooh. candlelight. Oh, no. Uh, the detective was able to exhume the remains of John along with a steel pipe and a few pearl buttons. 
It was noticed that Euphemia was smiling in the back seat as they uncovered the body and that she had a look of self-satisfaction. Oh my gosh, it's so gross. Yeah. Oh no. So now the question is, who is John and how did he get there? Yeah. So they decided to interview Euphemia about this event and get her side of the story. Okay. So his full name was John Odorovich, and he was renting a room in the house she shared with her third husband. Okay. While there, he fell in love with Euphemia. Naturally. Because, yeah. So one night, the three of them had gone out, and they were coming back, probably from, I think, from a night of drinking, too, which mm-hmm. doesn't help things in this situation. But uh, John and Joseph, her husband at the time, got into an argument in the car over Euphemia. Oh. John dropped off Euphemia at a friend's house where an unknown man took her spot in the car. She claimed to have never seen Joseph again after that. Okay. So, this is a quote from her. John and another man took my husband away and he never came back. John later told me he killed him and buried the body. Oh. I guess he had told her also that he had dumped the body in a giant hole near Mack Avenue in Connors. Okay. Uh, the hole was also a dump at the time, so the body got buried under tons of garbage. So they were never really able oh. to confirm it. She then claimed that now she was single. John was after her hand in marriage now. He's like, your husband's out of the way. Let's get married. And. What a proposal. Right. It gets even better. But she's like, no thanks. That's not really what I was looking for here. But thank you. So she moved to Wire Street, which like to get away from him. Mm-hmm. But he found her there, too. And this is when she started to detail how she killed him. He confronted her in her bedroom with a revolver, saying <gasps> he would kill her if she didn't marry him immediately. Wow. That's dick. Yeah. Everyone loves a marriage proposal that starts with an ultimatum. Mm-hmm. And a gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, revolver wedding, not even a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she claims that she went along with it long enough to get the gun from him after he put it on the nightstand. Okay. Then she shot him in the right eye, but it was not a fatal shot. Okay. She shot him again in the back as he tried to crawl out the window. Still not fatal. So she then shot him a third time under the chin, which finally did him in. Like in the neck. Under the chin. Wow. Yeah. So that's what finally. Yeah. Like got him. Yeah. That's a pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty sure spot. Yeah. You know. So she's telling the story to the detective and he can't help but notice that she's like very even toned and not like a hint of emotion or remorse as she's telling the story. She's very. Yep. And then I shot him in the face and then. You know, like kind mm-hmm. of a little too just uh, casual about it. Mm-hmm. Like she's talking over brunch or something. Yeah. And like she was using an interpreter to tell the story, but you could you can hear emotion in people's voice you even can. if you don't speak yeah. that language. If they're kind of just like, I mean, we've all seen foreign films. We can still read the emotion even if we yeah. can't understand the words. Yeah. It is, and I will say, it is, I mean, everybody deals with stuff differently, so it is hard to tell to a certain extent, but, like, you do expect something. Right. So then the detective tries to, like, test her a little bit, and, like, they, he pulls out the skull of the unburied and puts it on the table in front of her, 
and she kind of does, like barely does. She doesn't even really react. She's like, "Yep, there's the skull." No. Yeah. Not only that, but she was like, "See, I wasn't lying. Here's the gun hole from where the went through his eye. Here's the other gun hole in his chin. Like, see, I'm not lying." Gross. Yeah. What she didn't mention, however, were the hairline fractures that were on top of the skull. Oh, hmm. Yeah, the detective asked her about these, which she played dumb about. She's like, oh, I don't really know how that happened. Maybe when I was dragging him across the floor, to which I said, lies, Liza, because if that was the case, uh, the fractures would be on the side or back of the skull. Because if you're dragging someone yeah, okay. and their head, like, if they have fractures on the top of their skull, the trauma happened at the top of their skull. Yeah. So the detective remembered the pipe that was found with the remains and like kind of put a pin in this for now of like, I feel like since that was buried down there, it was involved, but I can't really Mm -hmm. prove it not coming up in her story. So just put a pin in it. And he went to comment about how there were no clothes with the body. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So Euphemia claimed that he was in his underwear when she shot him. But this didn't really kind of add up either, considering like the shooting took place in the afternoon. Like, mm-hmm. why is he just chilling? His, like, you said he came to your house, like to threaten you with a gun. Mm-hmm. Did he come in, take his clothes off, and then pull the gun out of his underwear? Like, it doesn't sound something. Yeah. Something sounded sus. Yeah. Like the evidence wasn't adding up, and they were kind of getting more from the evidence than they were from her story. This is kind of what their line of thinking was at the time, that she had convinced John to murder Joseph because she was done with him. And there was also a neighbor, this is more evidence, a neighbor that had been interviewed that claimed that Euphemia offered her $15 to find a contract killer to murder Joseph. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Hmm. she wasn't able to, and that's why she killed him. Like, (laughs) like she had Joseph do it, and then she she had John do it and needed to get rid of him, so she killed the guy who killed her husband, basically. Yep. Okay. And they also thought the reason he was nude at the time is because it actually happened while he was sleeping and you sh- Euphemia shot him in the face then. So kind okay. of like he was sleeping and that would explain if she- he was sleeping and she hits him over the head with the pipe. But also, if you're going to shoot him in the face, like my father, I don't know. Yeah. So just something's not adding up. There's just... Also, I'll- I w- I'm wondering too, um, in reference to shooting... Wouldn't there be bullet holes in the premises, like in the the wall or the floor or the bed or something like that, too? Well, that's the thing is they don't know when this was committed because it wasn't like. But that's what I'm saying. They would have found bullet holes in that room, at least one. But like, I don't know how much time would pass because she like she seems crafty enough that she would have, I don't know, filled him in or something. You can tell, though. That's true. That's not like an easy. Yeah. Fix, I don't think, especially in like. 1920 whatever it was like just re wallpaper the room yeah <laughs> so they were like something happened let's have a trial yeah let's have a trial <laughs> and of course it was a newspaper sensation because it's a woman doing crime mm-hmm. and literally like september 9th 1924 okay so like a day after they kind of like started discovering this mm-hmm. the free press ran an article titled Woman wed nine times held as murderer. Nine times? Yeah, they low-key just doubled her marriage count. <laughs> like, she'd been married four times. They were just like, you know what's more sensational than four? Nine. <laughs> Let's double it and put one on to wish on. Right. Like a birthday cake. Exactly. 
her attorney was obviously hella pissed. Yeah. And he went on to try and paint Slander. a picture. What? Slander. Slander. What's the other term that's like? Libel. Libel yeah. and slander. Yeah. Libel, slander, garbage. He, so then he tried to paint a picture of Euphemia as being feeble-minded and that her current husband was using the murder to blackmail her into staying with him and that the victim was the crazy stalker of hers. Hmm. Which I don't really know how much this, these hmm. facts were helping anything, hmm. but they were thrown out there. So the trial would begin months later on December 13th, 1924. The first day she was completely fine, just kind of like sitting there, taking it all in, twiddling her thumbs, whatever. The second day when she actually took the stand, she, you know, had her Bible and was like, oh, I'm emotional. I'm an emotional woman on the limit. Oh, God, I'm just real torn up about this today. Not yesterday. Yeah. But today, I, you know, I have my Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... She told the story again of how she killed John or how she had John kill her third husband and then threatened her not to talk. She also described John as an alcoholic Jekyll and Hyde. And then she kind of goes into the story of like where she was like, he came to confront me. I shot him in the face, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And then buried him in the crawl space by candlelight, which how romantic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We love to bury the body in candlelight. Mm-hmm. Always. Just adds a nice touch. Yeah. Ambiance. Helps with the smell, too, if it's scented. It's true. I don't know if they had scented ones in uh, 1924, though. True. They were wax scented. Yeah. <laughs> so she could spin a tail, but she could not beat the evidence. Mm-hmm. So, like, right off the bat, they were like, but what about them skull fractures, though? And they were, like... She made no mention of it in her testimony, but they were clearly there as a testament to blunt force trauma to the skull mm-hmm. at least once, but likely a few times. And the next piece of evidence was a surprise for both Euphemia and her defense, but it was a rib that was dug up with the remains. It had a groove on it. And from this groove, the coroner was able to determine that the victim was shot from the front and not the back, as Euphemia suggested. Oh, interesting. And because, like, they didn't let the defense know about this piece of evidence beforehand, they didn't have any excuses to refute it ready. So they kind of were just like, oh, I don't know. So after that, the jury reached their conclusion in less than two hours. Mm -hmm. It was reported that throughout her guilty verdict and sentencing, she maintained her composure and that, quote, not even an eyelash flutter, end quote, according to the free press. Wow. Grasping her Bible? No, she was kind of just like, well, the gig's up, kind of. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But she, I wrote, luckily, unlike so many of these stories, there was no mistrial or shenanigans of like, wait, there was a piece of evidence hiding in the shoebox under the bed. We mm-hmm. got to do this again. It kind of was like, she was a one and done trial girl. And I, I so no appeals or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. She was just guilty. And she went to a prison farm in Plymouth. Oh. Because I guess that had just been built to... I don't know if it was to replace or supplement the House of Corrections that was aging at okay. this point. But she lived out the rest of her days there when, until she died on August 29th, 1961, at the age of 77. And just one last detail from this trial that I have to mention before we wrap up the story is both her current husband, Steve, and her second husband, George Woodchuck. Mm-hmm. They apparently both attended the trial, and after she was sentenced, they shook hands and congratulated each other on surviving Euphemia. 
which I'm like, oh. yes, get it. I Love feel like this they needed you. a t-shirt. Yeah. Like they have a bond. Yeah. They both survived this murdering trifling ass woman. Oh, I hope they were besties after that for the rest of their days. I would, I hope they were just like nice pen pals, you know, because yeah. he was in Toronto and Steve was in Detroit. But I hope they would visit. I hope so too. Yeah. Like they had, they had a weekend every, every year, once right. a year. Yeah. They could bond over surviving. Exactly. Wow. That was interesting. Right? Well done. Thank you. I like, I had a feeling you would enjoy this one. And just Mm -hmm. my source real quick, this did come out of Wicked Women of Detroit by Topin T. Book. And I went to get more information from the, like just see if I could find more information. And like, I'm glad it was in the books. I was able to find next to nothing online. Yeah. Some of those stories for whatever reason are hard. Um, I always like sometimes go to the sources that the book used. Yeah. But it's usually already been included. So. Right. Right. Yeah. That is the story of Euphemia Mondick. Well done. Thank you. Well done indeed. Wow. Some people. Yeah. The audacity. Nerve to call the audacity the gumption. I don't want to give them the word gumption, though. Yeah. I like the word gumption too much. Yeah. We're keeping that one. We are keeping that one. It is ours. We will share it with our listeners. Yes. We can keep the spooky vibes going a little bit. Hell yeah. Because I got a two truths and a lie about some, uh, I guess we would call them uh, superstitions. Spooky season superstitions. superstitions. Yeah. So I've got. Pradens on the wall. Those are the only lines I know. So I had to sing both of them. It's the only background part i know and i botched it so we got it we got there eventually <laughs> because i don't sound like a uh bass guitar is that bass guitar? i don't know i can we're not it. a Electric, music podcast I, yeah no but we try no okay so number one superstition don't eat apples after halloween okay number two be careful at crossroads on halloween okay number three Head to sea on Halloween to experience the double sight. Huh. Okay. So don't eat apples after Halloween. Avoid crosswalks on Halloween. And go to the sea on Halloween if you want to have double vision. Do you, I mean, do you want a clarification of what double sight is? Yes. Because it just sounds kind of spooky. Yes. Seeing yourself, like a, a, a repeat of yourself. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to go with number one being a lie just because that would be hella rude of people who hand out apples on Halloween. You want me to eat all these apples tonight? You want me to eat all these apples tonight on this day with all this candy around? No, no, ma'am. Well, you caught me because that is the lie. Um, I was trying to think of something, but it's actually don't eat blackberries after Halloween. Okay. Yeah, this one comes from the British Isles, and it was said to it was said to be evil to eat blackberries after Halloween because on that night, quote, the spirit called puka, which is Irish for ghost, okay. comes out and defiles them. Oh no! Mm-hmm. However, in some Celtic lands, some Celtic lands, it was thought that if you eat a large apple under an apple tree at midnight in Halloween, wearing only a bed sheet, you would never get a cold. So it is good to eat an apple. Yeah. Yeah. So the other ones, be careful at crossroads. This one comes from Wales, and it's thought that a disembodied spirit spirit is sitting at every crossroad. 
and style, which is like a small structure to allow humans to get over a fence, but not animals. Yeah. On All Hallows Eve. So they're just waiting for you. Okay. And then the double sight one. So Norman Seaman, who ventured out to see on Halloween, quote, were said to have the double sight that is, each one beheld a living likeness of himself seated in close contact, and if he was engaged in any work, the phantom was doing the same. Ooh. Yeah. So I, I think Norman Seaman, I'm assuming Normandy. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that specific one. But I do have some other ones because these are fun. Yes. So, and all of this comes from good old friend, Mental Floss, of course. We love Mental Floss. We do, we do. So in Scotland, you can secure good luck for yourself by waving around a red hot end of a fiery stick in certain mystic figures, which I'm actually wondering, are they Celtic? Yeah. I don't know. So you should throw a white stone into a fire on Halloween to see if you'll live another year. And this is a Welsh tradition. Okay. And after building a bonfire of some sort, each family member would throw in a small white stone that they had marked in some way. And the next morning, they'd search through the remains of the fire to find them. If one was missing, it meant the person wouldn't live to see another Halloween. I don't know. I'm, I'm not testing that one. Nope. Mm-mm. Don't yeah. want them. In the Western Isles, it was considered bad luck to leave your house on Halloween, so you had to stay home. That's a bummer. No trick-or-treating. Oh. And on All Hallows' Eve, the fishermen of the Orkney Islands made a cross on their boats with tar for good luck. If they weren't successful, they sprinkled Forspoken water over their boats. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Is that like LaCroix? Is that like, yes, it's actually just LaCroix. Okay, okay. Some people would actually, before like the internet and all that kind of stuff, they would actually tell the weather based on what direction a bull was facing Okay. while lying down on Halloween. And that would be the direction that the wind would blow from for most of the winter. Interesting. Yeah. This one's fun because my cousin was born on Halloween. Children born on Halloween were said to have the power to see spirits and converse with fairies. I'm not sure where this one comes from, but yeah, I don't think my cousin does. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's like a large spectacle. Uh, spe- he doesn't believe a lot of the stuff. Fair. Skeptical. <laughs> Skeptical. Thank you. Yes. It's like I'm saying it right. So, uh, oh, to protect your fields light a torch and sing on Halloween. Okay. And this is from as late as the 17th century in Scotland for farmers. And they would walk around their fields just with light a torch, singing or chanting uh, a piece of the dog. Can't say that word. Dog girl verse to protect their fields from harm, which I've never heard of the dog girl verse. Mm-hmm. This one's kind of funny, but we'll just throw it in. So beware of witches. Okay. Yes. Yes. say. And it was once called Witch's Night or Devil Sunday, and it was thought to be the occasion for a major celebration led by his satanic majesty. And I'm not sure where this one comes from. Uh, They were said to leave sticks in their beds to fool their husbands and then ride to the festivities on a broomstick anointed with the fat of murdered, unbaptized infants. Love it. Or if they couldn't find one, a cat. Oh. Quote, All Scotch boys will remember how tired the cats were the day after Halloween says the Encyclopedia of Superstitions and Folklore. Ooh. It goes on to say, Some pitied their miserable appearance. Others were mad at them for carrying the witches. And then I have another one that's actually from a different mental floss thing, but I just thought this was funny. So razors and candy. Yep. Definitely a myth. 
Okay. Never happened. But there was one time on Long Island in 1964 when 13-year-old Elsie Drucker and her 15-year-old sister Irene came back from trick-or-treating to find two bottle cap-looking things. And it had the warning, poison, keep away from children and animals, written on it. Turned out they were called ant buttons. And they were basically used on household pests. So their father called the police. Yeah. So their father called the police and was like, what the what? And soon word got out and parents began to inspect their children's candy in the neighborhood. And they found 19 more ant buttons throughout town. Damn. So Elsie and Irene helped police trace the poison back to 43 Salem Ridge Drive, where 47-year-old Helen Fail, P-F-E-I-L, lived with her husband and children. As it turned out, others had confirmed that she had been the one handing them out as well. So police found an empty box of ant buttons in her kitchen, and she was arrested. Nobody had ingested any of them, so she was only charged with child endangerment. But during her arraignment on November 2nd, so pretty quickly, she tried to say that she didn't mean to do it maliciously, but basically that she felt like some of the kids trick-or-treating were too old. Okay, so you want to stop them from getting older by killing them? Like, Mm. a bitch, where's the logic? Yeah, yep. So she put together packages of ant buttons, dog biscuits, and steel wool to put into the baskets of any children that she deemed too old. Oh, God. She tried claiming it was a joke. It's still poison, bitch. Yeah. Weird thing is her husband wasn't in on this because he was out trick-or-treating with their two teenage sons. Of course. She was actually sent to spend 60 days in a psych hospital. By next April, she ran on trial in Riverhead, New York, and she had switched her plea from not guilty to guilty at this time. But neighbors, they started to write in on her behalf of her character. And she was deemed not a danger to society. And (sighs) nothing happened. Sure. Those rascally kids getting old and trick-or-treating. I mean, trick-or-treated pro- as a teenager. I'm trying to remember when I stopped. Because, like, I remember I felt like I stopped sooner than I feel like I... Like, looking back, I wish I would have trick-or-treated long. Because I definitely don't think I did it in high school at all. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know why I didn't. And I don't even know if I did it in middle school, to be honest. I, maybe I did a little bit in middle school, but... My rule of thumb... Is as long as somebody's dressing up. Right. I don't care. Like if you're in, if you're in the mood, if you're, you know, doing it and you're doing the whole Halloween thing. Right. Power to you. If you got a costume, that's my thing. Like, I don't care how old you are. Just wear a costume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you can't just say like you're sweats man, you know? Yeah. If you're lame, then like, no, because it's lame. If you're lame, you'll get lame candy. Yeah. Like nothing but bottle caps. Yeah, but actual bottle caps, not ant poison. No, yeah. <laughs> just metal bottle caps. I'll just like open a beer above their candy bag. It'd be like. Mm-hmm. For me, you'll get pennies. One yes. penny. They're dirty ones, not the shiny kind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Extra dirty. Yes. Not how you like them extra dirty, those pennies. Oh, yeah. Picked fresh from the urinal. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm wearing gloves. Um, I have a, I have a copper allergy. Yeah, but I decided to give up pennies anyway. (laughs) Uh, I think that wraps us like a piece of Halloween candy that's not poisoned. Yeah, no, one of those safe ones. Yeah, a good Reese's cup or something. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, or the tiny Kit Kat. Oh, yeah. Yep, Mm -hmm. Yep. we're wrapped Mm -hmm. like a Kit Kat. 
hear that crunch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just a reminder, email address is still DetroitStrange at gmail.com. Social media is at DetroitStrange on Instagram and Twitter and DetroitStrange on Facebook. And yeah, we got that Patreon, you know, Apple Podcasts, reviews, Threadless, Threadless. all the things. Oh, yeah. But I think... Until next time, stay strange. This has been a production of Planet Amp Podcast, powered by Pinecast. Our theme song was created by Detroit duo Sax and Violence.